Man, we are nine days from Christmas, and we are right in the middle of a Bible study about Christmas, what we can learn from Christmas. Uh, and I'm learning some great things about Christmas this year that I'm excited to share with you. But I'm, I'm also learning some, some things about uh, other areas in life that I have great interest in. For those of you who know me or have been around enough to, to hear me preach even a few times, um, you know I like sports. I, I love sports. And, and, um, and I know a little bit about sports, but I, I'm beginning to realize that there's a big difference between someone who's just a fan and someone who knows anything about sports. And I realized it this week as I researched a, a person that I thought was one of the greatest quarterbacks in the history of the NFL. His name is Joe Namath. Even if you're not a, a big football fan, you've probably heard of Joe Namath. But I found out this week that Joe Namath statistically uh, is one of the worst quarterbacks uh, in the history of the NFL uh, Football Hall of Fame. Um, he is, uh, he is, uh, has one of the worst one-loss records of any quarterback in the Hall of Fame. He actually lost more football games in the NFL than he won but still made it to the Football Hall of Fame. He's one of the worst quarterbacks in terms of touchdown to interception ratio. He threw nearly 50 more interceptions in his career than touchdowns, um, and he didn't play on an extreme amount of great winning teams. You look at Joe Namath, and, and if you just looked at his stats, you'd say, this, you know, this guy does not deserve to be in the Hall of Fame, but he is legendary for one thing. In 1969, his uh, underdog New York Jets were playing the Baltimore Colts in Super Bowl III, Don Shula was their heralded coach. They were by far and away the best team in the NFL. And sitting out beside the pool one day um, in Florida, he told a bunch of reporters, he said, I guarantee we will win this game. And then he backed it up, and he won it. Literally, all of his legend, all of his fame, was not on the backs of his play, but on the backs of his guarantee. And here's what made his guarantee special. Because a lot of people guarantee they're going to do a lot of things. He actually backed it up. He did what he said he was going to do, which was something that, that a lot of people didn't think could be done. Last week, as we started talking about Christmas, I took you to Genesis chapter 3, where God guaranteed, where God predicted that, uh, that the separation that had started between humanity and God would be ended by a little baby. God made, made a prediction that didn't even make any sense. That in, in this cosmic war between good and evil, which we certainly understand more through the lens of this week, and someone going into a mall and organ and shooting people, and then on Friday someone going into an elementary school and shooting people, and then yesterday someone going into a hospital in Alabama and shooting three people, we realize we live in a messed up world where, where there is certainly the presence of good and evil. And God in Genesis 3, like Joe Namath sitting beside the pool, said, I'm, one day I'm going to end this. I guarantee this is going to end. And he said, a baby is going to be born that's going to end this. Uh, that prediction, as we step into Scripture today, it had been about uh, 5,000 years maybe since God had said those words, and nothing had yet happened. And even people who followed God, even people that we would say went to church, even pastors who led people spiritually were beginning to question, like, God, can we really trust you? Because we've been waiting and nothing has happened. Last week I talked to you and told you the Christmas story was the story of a big rescue, the greatest rescue in the history of the world. Today I want to show you as a part of the rescue what I would call the big prediction. I want to show you how God sharpened his prediction to help us understand not only what was going to happen at this great holiday that we celebrate as Christmas, but what that would mean for us. He predicted not only that it would happen, but he predicted exactly what it would mean to us in the book of Isaiah. Now, if you have a Bible, I want you to turn your Bible to the book of Isaiah. We're going to be in Isaiah chapter 7. 
If you don't have a Bible today, no big deal. Our ushers are going to come down the aisle. We love to pass out Bibles at our church. If you forgot your Bible, if you don't have a Bible, if you want a Bible, if you just want to follow along so you can fact check me and make sure I'm really reading what's in the Bible, raise your hand and our ushers will give you a Bible. Since we started our church nearly 18 months ago, we've given away more than 300, so it's our pleasure to give this to you. If you just forgot one, uh, use, use this one. And then you can throw it on the table when you leave. If you don't have a Bible or you don't know where yours is, put your name in the front of this one and take it home. It's our gift to you, uh, and we're glad that, uh, that you're here, and, and we can give you a Bible. I hope you'll go home and start reading it and learn more about who God is and, uh, and how he loves you. But in Isaiah chapter 7, we meet a man um, named Isaiah who in contemporary language would be a pastor. Uh, he was a spiritual leader. He was called a prophet in the Old Testament. God would communicate to him what was happening. And Israel was at a time kind of like where America finds itself this week, where Israel had as a history this, this great religious tradition. Israel had these great roots of spirituality and the founding of their nation, and they thought that God was going to bless them to be all things to all people, and they had now been a nation uh, several hundred years um, they had seen the rise, you know, God predicted not only that Israel would be a nation, but one day they would have a great king, and they, they did. They saw a king named David come, um, and remember, God had kept predicting that some child born out of Israel would come and, and literally be the world's savior. David had a son named Solomon, um, who's remembered as one of the wisest, most powerful men who ever led in the history of the world. I mean, Israel had gone through their peak time, and now they were on the way, their way downhill, and Isaiah, as a pastor, was, was kind of struggling with God, saying, God, like, can we trust you to do what you said? You said that one day you were going to end this battle between good and evil. You said that one day the separation that exists between God and man was going to be over. And like, God, how much longer are we going to have to wait? God, can we still trust you? God, are you still planning on doing this? God, is there any hope anywhere for anyone? And God said, yes. And he began to give Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 7 and 8 and 9, he began to give Isaiah the truth, some of it repeated, some of it brand new, that here's what's going to happen through a child to bring humanity back to me and to allow good to triumph over, over evil in the life of people. And in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, we see that God gave uh, Isaiah two predictions. And if, if you're just keeping score spiritually, uh, and if you just like historical notes, this is 700 years before Jesus was born that God was telling Isaiah this. So we would call this not only a prediction, we would call it prophecy, which meant that, that it was truth foretold in an accurate manner. God was foretelling the future. We call that prophecy when God said, hey, I know what's going to happen because I exist eternally. Let me tell you exactly what's going to happen in the future. We would call this prophecy, but, but God predicted two things to Isaiah. When Isaiah said, what are we going to do with this world that's falling apart? God said, two things are going to happen. And we celebrate, these are two of the greatest Christmas verses in the Bible, in, in, in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 7, 14. In a minute, we're going to read Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. But here's what God said was going to happen. And this is where we left off last week. A baby's going to be born that's going to end all this craziness that has humanity so distant from God. A baby will fix this. So where we left off last week is where we pick up this week. When Isaiah said, is there an answer? God said, yes. The answer continued to be a baby, but I want to expand upon it a little bit. In Isaiah chapter 7, 14, God said, here's, here's what's going to happen when I begin the process of fixing things. He said, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Now, I want you to underline or circle or highlight that word sign. Because God said, I'm going to make this real clear. I'm, I'm going to bring an event about that is such a big event that people will celebrate it for the rest of 
the world. This will not be something that people miss. This can be something that people deny. This can be something that people don't believe. But this will not be an event that, that will be missed. Everyone will know something happened at this specific time to bring about a mighty, mighty change. You may have read this week that one of the billboards that they put up in, in Times Square in New York City uh, was, a, was a big picture of Santa Claus uh, in Times Square, and it, it was a billboard that, that had a top part and a bottom part, and, and on the top part it said, keep the Mary, and it had a picture of Santa Claus, and then it said, lose the myth, and it had a picture of Jesus hanging on a cross. So there are a lot of people who don't believe Christmas has anything to do with Jesus. There are a lot of people who, who don't celebrate Christmas as anything to do with a baby being born that brought salvation to the world. But, but this event is something that at least they have to acknowledge. God said, I'm going to give you a sign. The whole world, they may not believe it, but they will know something happened because for the rest of time, people will remember this event. And what is the event? Isaiah 7, 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. It'll be clear. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel. Now, there's a lot in that little verse that we need to kind of unpack. But here's what you need to realize, because Isaiah had been asking a question that a lot of people in Israel had been asking. God, you said someday a baby was going to be born that saved us, that spared us, that changed things. Uh, and in Israel's history, there were a lot of what I would call supernatural babies. Um, the, the, the secret to Isaiah 7.14 is not that a kid was born, because there are a lot of what I would call, what the Bible would call, there are a lot of what I would call key kids in Israel's history. A lot of moms and dads who were destined for spiritual greatness, who couldn't have kids, who God had to intervene and bless them with a child that would carry on a spiritual legacy. So it wasn't just the baby. I mean, you think about Isaac. Um, Isaac was the promised son of Abraham and Sarah. Abraham had been promised. Abraham, if you will follow me, I'm going to give you a son. Your son will have a family that will be too many to count. And you're going to have your own land and kings are going to come. And I'm going to elevate you to the world. And 25 years after that promise, Abraham is 100. His wife is 90. And he's like, God, like, I still don't have a kid. And God came and he's like, listen, I'm going to give you guys a kid at this time next year. And Abraham was like, uh, I'm 100. Sarah's 90. I don't think everything works well enough for that to happen anymore. Um, so are you sure? And God's like, yeah, just do it. And God created like the first supernatural Viagra pill. And a year later, at 190, um, Abraham's 100. His wife is 91. Bang, out pops a kid. We see this supernatural kid, Isaac, who is an answer to prayer that God's going to do something. But, but Isaiah 7.14 says somebody more important than Isaac is coming. We hear about in the book of Judges a man named Samson, who, who I would refer to as like the Bible's first bodybuilder. He was somebody who supernaturally was born because the, Israel, the Israelites, um, and, and if, you, if you just want a little weird history to show you how long this has been going on, the Israelites lived in a time in the book of Judges where they kept getting attacked by terrorists that lived in a part of Israel, and the capital city of, of that place in Israel uh, was a city named Gaza. So you say, like, wait a minute, Christian, you talk about like right now? No, like 4,000 years ago, there were a group of people named the Philistines. They had five major cities, Ashdod, Ashkelon, Ekron, Gaza, and something else I can't remember right off the top of my head. Um, and they lived in what is currently the Gaza Strip, and they were terrorists. You would sneak into Israel, and they'd kill a bunch of people, and then they'd run back home. This has been happening for thousands and thousands of years. And the Israelites said, God, what are you going to do? How, you know, like, how are we going to survive? 
And God came to a mother and father and said, I'm going to bless you with a son. This lady could not have children. And he said, your son, the specific purpose of his life is going to be to deliver Israel from the Philistines. And his whole life he fought against the Philistine terrorist uh, in, until he died. He was important, but he wasn't as important as the kid in Isaiah 7:14. Samuel was another what I would call key kid in Israel's history. Uh, his mom's name was Hannah. Uh, his dad's name was Elkanah. They were a couple that loved God dearly, that wanted to serve God, but they didn't have any kids. And every year his mom would pray, God, please let me have a baby. And she didn't have a baby. And finally one time she made this pledge in 1 Samuel chapter 1. She said, God, if you give me a baby, I, I swear I'll give him to you and he can serve you all the days of his life. And a year later she had a baby. And she took him to the temple. It said when he was two or three, and, and every year she'd bring him a little robe because he'd grow out of his old one. And he was trained from literally from two or three to be a pastor. And he ended up being a man that anointed David, just some shepherd kid, to be the king over Israel who would establish Israel as, as a world superpower. He, he was a key kid, but he, he wasn't the Isaiah 7:14 kid. There, there was John the Baptist in the New Testament or in the, in the story of Jesus. Uh, we hear about his mom, Elizabeth. His dad's name was Zechariah. His dad worked at, at the temple. And they couldn't have kids. And they prayed, God, please give us a kid. And, and God told his dad one day, you're going to have a son, and the purpose of your son is going to be to tell people that Jesus is coming. He, he was really, really important. But none of these key kids, born at key times in Israel's history, were, were answering the question that Isaiah had, when is it all going to get figured out? These were temporary fixes. But Isaiah 7.14 said it's not just going to be any kid. Isaiah 7.14 says this, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign, and the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel. You see, these, these babies, from Isaac to Samson to Samuel to John, these were important kids, but the world doesn't stop every year to celebrate their birth. Why? Because their birth did not mean the same thing as Jesus' birth. And here's what God said Jesus' birth would mean. He said, I'm going to give you a name that's not a name, it's a title. And the name was Emmanuel. That name means God with us. God said a baby will come. And there's been a lot of babies born and there will be a lot more babies born. And some of these babies were critically important to the spiritual history of the world. But only one baby will ever be born that is actually God stepping out of heaven to be with mankind. Only one, only one can change your life and change the world. The virgin will conceive and will give birth to a son that will be God with us. That's why Matthew, one of Jesus' disciples, who was an expert in the Old Testament, when he was telling the story of Jesus, Matthew wrote it this way. He said, remember Isaiah said that the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel. Then he translated it for us, which means God with us. Matthew said that has happened. Like that has happened. Jesus came and he was the promised one, promised in Genesis 3, predicted and prophesied in Isaiah chapter 7, and we could go to Micah chapter 5, and uh, you know, there's a lot of places where the Old Testament talks about a son being born who would save the world, but Matthew said this was him, Jesus, and what it meant is that God, God came and he was with us. But here's my question for you that I asked for myself this week. Okay, Jesus came and Jesus was God with us. I thought, like, what does that mean? Like, what does it mean that God is with us? Like, is God here today? Where was God on Friday morning in Connecticut? Where was God earlier this week in Oregon? Where was God Saturday in Alabama? Where was God when your marriage didn't work out, when your son or your daughter got sick, when you lost your job? I mean, we throw that phrase so loosely around, oh, God's here. What, do, what does that mean? What does that mean for you, and what does that mean 
for me? What does it mean that God can be with us? Because when you dig into this question, this is the question that I want answered. Not that Jesus was born at Christmas. I get that. What exactly does that mean for me that Jesus was born at Christmas? What does it mean to have God in my life personally? What does God with us mean? And as Isaiah continues to ask questions and God continues to answer questions, we find out what that means. What does God with us mean? Prediction number two, God told Isaiah, listen, God, a baby's going to be born who people will recognize as God being with you. But then he said, he's going to be with you and to you, a rescuing God. And this continues the theme that we started last night. God is going to come not just to be, be kind of omnipresent, just everywhere all at once. God is personally coming to rescue you and to give you what you need in your life. Turn just a chapter or two over to Isaiah chapter 9. Because in Isaiah chapter 9, this conversation is continuing. And in Isaiah chapter 9, Isaiah and God are trying, you know, Isaiah's trying to figure out with God, like, when are you going to end the separation between God and humanity? And how exactly is it going to happen? And what exactly is it going to mean for people? And how, and how will we know that God has become a part of our life? And do we even need this God? And in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, this is another verse that we often quote and hear around Christmas time, but we never stop to look at, we never stop to apply. God says this in Isaiah 9, 9 6. For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is, is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now I want to stop right there, and I, I want to show you a few things. Keep your Bible open. Keep your pen handy. In verse 6, it says, for to who? Who? Circle that word. God's not given Jesus in just this big way to the world he's given him to us to you and to me for to us the child was born for to us a son is given you need to circle the word us there in your bible and you need to write out in your bible me you see God sent the child born at Christmas time that we celebrate 2,000 years later for you sir and for you ma'am and for me, and for the teenagers in the house, for you, for unto you the child was born, for, for you the son was given. And here's what this person will do for us. We hear four things that he'll do for us. We think that these are just titles. These are not just titles. These are the spiritual work that Jesus will do for people when he comes into the world. And it's interesting because if you were to ask the world today, hey, tell me what you want out of life. I think these are the answers that you would get from people who are Christians and non-Christians, who are religious and irreligious, who are spiritual and atheists. I think the world would say the same things. Hey, what do you want out of life? I think people would say that I, I want wisdom. I want strength. I want immortality or eternity. I want to have inner peace. Isn't it interesting that God told Isaiah, here's what, here's what God with us means. When God is really with you, here's the characteristics of God in your life. He'll be to you a wonderful counselor. He'll give you wisdom. That's what it means to have God in your life. That's what God with us means, that you have in times where you need wisdom, you have wonderful counsel from God's word, from God's spirit, from God's people, from God's church. What does, what does God with us mean? What does that mean, Christians? It means that you have access to spiritual wisdom in your life. 
What does God with us mean? God told Isaiah, God will be called a mighty God. What does that mean? When you need strength, when you feel weak, and when don't we feel weak? When you wonder how long your job is going to last, when you wonder if your marriage is going to last, or your marriage has failed and you wonder if you're going to get married again, when you wonder if your kids are ever going to get out of substance abuse, or if your spouse is ever going to be able to beat their addiction, if you wonder if you're ever going to be able to get out of the fog of depression or discouragement or anxiety, you're wondering, God, I just feel so, so weak. I love that song, Jesus Loves Me. When we are weak, he is strong. What does God with us mean? God with us means when you're weak, he's strong. He's a mighty God. He gives us strength. God with us means everlasting father. God with us means eternity is real and eternity is next. And whether you're my wife whose grandmother, if if she hasn't died by now, will die today or tomorrow at 78 or 79, whether you're 78 or 79, or whether you're 7 or 8 in Connecticut on Friday, when this life ends, another one awaits. Why? Because God came to be with us. This is not all there is. That's what God with us means. That's what Christmas means. What what does God mean? Jesus will be the Prince of Peace. What does that mean? When we live with turmoil inside our soul, God with us means that we can have peace going through the most difficult of situations and circumstances. There is just an inner peace when we lay down at night to know that everything might not be all right, but everything is okay. Because God is with us and God is in control. Now, I believe one of the biggest misconceptions among Christians is that one day when we get to heaven, God will help us. But here we fend for ourselves. You say, where where do you pick up that misconception, Christian? John chapter 11. In John chapter 11, you don't have to turn there. Jesus had a group of friends. It was a guy and a girl, kind of a threes company situation. So they were family, Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. And Lazarus was a friend of Jesus who got sick and he died. And Jesus went to basically pay his respects after the funeral because he had missed the funeral because he was late. And the sisters came up and they're like, you know, you're Jesus and, and we've, like, we're friends with you. We've seen you heal people. We know you raise people from that. Why didn't you help Lazarus? And Jesus said, listen, like if you'll just hang on and believe in me, like you'll realize Lazarus is gonna live again. And Martha Lazarus' sister said this in John eleven twenty four. 24. I think it shows the misconceptions that so many Christians have. Martha answered, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Like Jesus, I know that you can do great things for me once this life is over. But like Lazarus is dead. And while I'm excited one day for you to carry my soul to heaven, like I, I've entrusted my soul to heaven, my life is hell. And I guess I'll just have to wait one day till eternity for, for you to do anything for me. I believe there's this misconception, and, and let me tell you why, why to me it's so weird. There are people sitting in this room who have no problem through faith thinking that one day when you die, and you can only believe this through faith, right? One day when you die, your soul will spiritually be transported from planet Earth to heaven and you're gonna be with God. That's what the Bible says. There, there are some of us who have like, That statement doesn't weird us out. We're like, yeah, that's exactly what I believe. That at death, God's going to take my soul and he's going to take it right to heaven. We believe God can do that with our soul, but we don't believe that he can help us over our depression today. We don't believe he can cure our anxiety today. We don't believe he can fix our marriage that's broken. We don't believe he can give us a job if we'll just pray. We don't trust him with our finances. 
We don't think he can help our kids. Like, we trust this God to do something that we've never seen happen, ever, at the end of our life, but we don't trust him with our life right now. And I think God a lot of times says, listen, I didn't say that Jesus would mean you with God one day. I said Jesus means God with you today. Like, right now. December 16th, 2012. There's a lot of us in here who say, Christian, you know, I've given my life to Jesus. I don't believe that. I believe there's a lot of you who have given your soul to Jesus. But your life is your own, and you carry your depression and your discouragement and your anxiety, and you carry your frustrations and you carry your addictions and you carry your hurts, and you're waiting to figure all that stuff out yourself. You've given your soul to God, but you're keeping your life for you. And see, God with us means that Jesus wants our life now because because he's, he's with us. Do you have the capacity in your faith right now to believe that God can rescue you from where you are emotionally spiritually physically psychologically struggling with depression discouragement fear anxiety you see what what God's trying to tell Isaiah in Isaiah 9 6 is God works now not just in the future now he's trying to say God rescues now if we would just open our eyes to see Jesus You know, for some of us, I think like Jesus is standing right in front of us, but we've been walking such a dark, narrow path of life that we've not recognized he's right there. We're expecting him to be there when we die. We're not expecting him to be there today. And we're missing his invitation to allow him to be God with us today. Let me give you an illustration of this. When I was young, I've been thinking about my fifth and sixth grade years a lot in seventh and eighth grade the last few weeks. Um, and like, I, 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 I know you don't believe this, but I was a little bit of a troublemaker when I was in like fifth and sixth and seventh and eighth grade. You know, I, I wanted to be the class clown. I wanted to be funny. And, and I, I got in trouble every now and then, sometimes a lot when I was in elementary and, uh, and middle school. I found a picture last time I was at my mom and dad's house that I, I don't know where they got. I had forgotten about it, but apparently it, it was from fifth grade. I had gotten in trouble in fifth grade because it was a picture of me standing in front of the chalkboard, and on the chalkboard behind me, my name was written, and it had two check marks by it, which I remember meant that I had gotten in trouble three times that day, and I had missed recess. And the picture was, it, it, what, what they made us do if, if we were, got in trouble in missed recess is we had to clean the erasers. Y'all remember like chalk and erasers, you know. Our kids now only have whiteboards or computers, but remember the chalk and the erasers. And when you missed recess, you had to clean out the, you had to go outside and you had to clean out the erasers. Well, this picture was of me and I had basically stamped myself with the eraser. So it was a picture of me with two erasers, I don't even know who took it, smiling in front of a board with my name with two check marks next to it. And I just thought, man, the teachers must have, like, must have just hated me. Um, I remember in sixth grade, I, m- myself and another friend got kicked out of the cafeteria um, during lunch because we were farting during lunch. And they kicked us, they, the lunch lady kicked us out of the cafeteria. Myself and my friend may be the only kids in the history of the world. I had to write a paper on why it was inappropriate to pass gas during mealtime at school. I wish my mom and dad had saved that for the scrapbook because that is, I mean, that's, that's like legendary. I got kicked out when I was in middle school. I got kicked out of the band because our, our band director got upset because we were seventh and eighth graders. I played the trumpet. We weren't very good. And one day he got really mad and he had his little stick and he broke his stick on his deal. And he said, why don't you practice at home? And I said, because I'd heard it on a movie, that's what she said. And everyone started laughing, and he was like, go to the office. Um, Like, 
I was kind of a troublemaker and did crazy stuff and got in trouble a lot. And I was thinking about that this week because my son, who's in fifth grade, got in trouble uh, last week on the bus. He rides the bus with a, a lot of the kids who are on his football team, and they're not bad kids, but they're crazy kids. And the weather's been so nice that they've been riding the bus with the windows down. And when his football buddies get dropped off, he would, like, sit up in his seat, and he would scream out the window and, you know, call them girl names. And, you know, I mean, it's just, they're stupid fifth-grade boys. I mean, right, that, that's what they do. So he'd been warned not to do it, and he did it again. He'd been warned not to do it, and he did it again, been warned not to do it. So he got what the school system calls a pink slip, which was basically kind of a final warning. Dad has to sign it. Principal has to sign it. And if you do this again, you're going to get kicked off the bus. So I was trying, in trying to figure out how bad of a parent I was and how bad my son is, um, I just started thinking about who I was, and I thought, man, he's not anywhere near what I, you know, who I was. But on Monday last week, Danielle and I decided to take our kids lunch at school. And we surprised him. They did not know we were coming. And it was the same day that he had to take his pink slip back to the principal. I had signed it, and his principal had to sign it. Um, and, and it was the same day that he was kind of, kind of sort of in trouble. And we went to the office, and we checked in, and we said, hey, we brought our kids lunch today. And it was actually Casey's lunchtime, so we got to give hers to her in the cafeteria. And they said, well, Christian's still in class, so we're going to have to call him down to the office. So I, t- you know, I said to Danielle, tell him to call him, but like, make sure they know he's not in trouble, because I know how he's going to think. You know, if they just say Christian Newsom needs to come to the office, I've taken that walk a few times. And that's not a fun, <laughs> that's not a fun walk. Well, of course, they, you know, they forget. I'm sitting right there by the secretary when she calls back to the room. Uh, hey, can you send Christian Newsom down to the office? Okay, thank you. And I just told Daniel, he's going to be scared out of his mind. You know, he's going to think he's in trouble. This is like the, the walk of death row, you know? And, you know, I'm standing there with Subway, which is like his favorite meal. He wants to eat Subway like every day of the week. And I'm sitting like right there beside the front desk. And he comes walking down the hallway. And because I know my son's well, he's, he's doing this with his hands, which means he's nervous. And he's kind of biting his lip. And his eyes were like tearing up. And he was scared out of his mind. And like from me to the back of the gym, I could see him. And I was waiting for him to realize it, that it was me. He was coming to the office for me, that he was in trouble, that I had lunch. And he literally, he could have seen me for 50 feet. And he not one time looked at me. And he walked up to the office to, to, to the secretary to tell her he was there. And I finally said, Christian. And he looked over at me. And you could just see, like, his whole countenance was like, oh, thank God. I, I, I thought I was in trouble. You know, some of us, like Jesus is standing right in front of us. In, in, Ro- in Revelation 3.20, Jesus is inviting us to do what I was inviting Christians to do. He's saying, listen, I stand, like I'm standing at the door and I'm knocking. And like I've got a meal for you. And I just want to sit down and hang out with you. And we are so focused on the problems and the fears and the anxieties and what has been done wrong and what we've done wrong and what we're worried about could go wrong that literally some of us are standing right next to Jesus wondering what could go wrong next, not realizing that he has been coaxing us. The reason we're going down this path of life is because he's waiting at the end of us to give, it a bless- to give us a blessing and we're standing right there next to him wondering what the next bad step of our life is going to be when we really need to wake up and, and open our eyes and realize, oh, Jesus is right here. You see, some of us are thinking, well, when I die, I'll see Jesus. No, you could see Jesus today if you would open up your eyes. You know, my little girl is, is how old is Casey? She nine? Was praying this morning on the way to church. She's my good kid, so I don't have to, I don't have to know as much about her. She never, she never gets in trouble. It's like, you know, she's fine. I don't even know how old she is, but she, she's okay. Um, 
We were praying today on the way to church. I always have my kids pray with me. Danielle gets here early to do worship stuff, and we drive, and my kids pray. And Casey prayed something that she's never prayed before in her life. Um, she was praying, and she said, Lord, help the people to hear with their hearts today when Dad preaches. Help the people to hear with their hearts today when Dad preaches. See, some of you have been on a six-month, a year, a three-year, a decade-long journey to the principal's office in your mind to go get your wrist slapped, to go get in trouble. You're filled with anxiety. You're filled with worry. You're filled with fear. You're thinking, you know, one day you're not going to be in trouble because one day you're going to go to heaven and be with Jesus, but you don't even realize he is standing right beside you with your favorite meal to give you a hug, to let you know you're not in trouble, to let you know that he loves you, to let you know that he can help you. And here you are like Santa Claus with your bag of life. You've given God your soul but not your life, and you're lugging it around every day wondering if it will ever get better. You know, I read a weird verse this week that I didn't know what it meant, so I went and looked it up, and it was like kind of a life-changing perspective. I was reading the book of Numbers. You know, I don't know if you're like me. I, yeah, I'm a preacher. I, I try to read my Bible every day. Sometimes it's really boring. Like, have you ever read the Bible and you're like, you know, where's the remote? I mean, it's just, it was just one of those. I'm reading in Numbers, and Numbers is just like, it's a, just a bunch of names of people. And I was like, you know, so I'm like, as I'm reading, I'm like, this is so boring. And I read Numbers 13, 16. And it talks about the leaders of the people of Israel underneath Moses that he sent out to basically go scout out some land. And it gave their names, 12 names. And then at the end of that, it tells us that Moses renamed one of them, which is like, who cares? Uh, Numbers 13, 16. It said, these were the names of the men Moses sent to explore the land. And then it says in parentheses, Moses gave Hosea, son of Nun, the name Joshua. You're like, so, so he changed a letter. Who cares? It's, it sounds better. You know what I mean? Regardless of what it means, Joshua sounds better than Hosea. But, I, but, but as I was reading, I thought, I wonder why he did that. And I went down to my study notes, and I found out that the name Hosea means desire for salvation. You see, Moses found a man who more than anything in life wanted God to save him, wanted God to change him. He had this tremendous desire, but no reality of that. And then somewhere along the way, he found that. So Moses changed his name to Joshua, which means the Lord is salvation. You see, some of you today need to change your spiritual name from Hosea. I hope one day the Lord does something for me to Joshua. The Lord has done something for me. It's only one letter in our alphabet, but it is a major life-changing perspective of I wonder if God will ever do anything for me to God has done something for me, and I recognize it, and I receive it right now. What does God with us mean? It means wisdom. It means strength. It means peace. God with us is everything that we would desire. It means everlasting life. That's what God with us means. If, indeed, you will open your eyes and realize God is with you. The long walk of anxiety, panic, and fear. Maybe it, maybe it wasn't intended to be that. 
Maybe Jesus was just calling you to himself to get a little closer and your mind went where it didn't need to go. And maybe you've created a lot of it yourself and now you just need to say, oh, oh, Jesus, it's you. And you want to hang out. And you brought me lunch. Okay, I can do this. You see, today, Jesus is waiting. Next weekend, we're going to celebrate Christmas at our church. It's going to be awesome. On December 23, I've got a Bible study titled The Big Announcement. And we're going to talk about how Jesus was revealed to the world at the time of his birth. On Christmas Eve, we're going to have a one-hour Christmas Eve service. It's going to be a family service. That's, we're, going to read the, we're going to invite all the kids up on stage, and we're going to read the Christmas story to the kids. And then we're going to do family communion together. It'll just be a kind of a short, nice service just to say, thank you, Jesus, happy birthday, Jesus, before we transition to go open gifts and do all the family stuff. I hope you and your families can make it. But today might be the day for you to go from Hosea, and one day I hope the Lord will help me, to Joshua, the Lord has helped me. Today is the day to end the walk to the principal's office and realize your heavenly father has just called you to come and see him so he could bless you. Will you bow your heads and pray with me right now? Kind of depressing, it is, except...